Ephesians chapter 1, beginning of verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his grace of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Apostle Paul is writing this uh, letter to the Ephesian church. Uh, They are in a situation very similar to the one that we face today in all sorts of different ways. They have um, a Many different gods around them, many different religious ideologies. Um, they're dominated by the political power of, of Rome. They're not living in a in a Christian culture, a Christian society. There's, so we saw last week. There's the goddess of Artemis, who's right there, one of the seven wonders of the world that dominates the ideology and the spirituality of the city, and and she's. If not big brother, she's big sister watching over them. And there's Rome with, its, with its, the worship of the, the emperor that, that politically and militarily dominates the, the situation. And, and then there's all this magical incantations. Uh, uh, Ephesus was known as the metropolis of magic, as one scholar puts it. And so they were surrounded by, and it's a similar, obviously we don't live in ancient Ephesus. We live in Wheaton outside Chicago in 21st century, not, not when Paul was writing in AD 62. Also, it's a very different situation in many different ways. We've got internet and phones and electricity and all the rest. But don't think of the book of Ephesus as sort of writing to an ancient world that has no comparable resonance with our day. In fact, in many ways, as our culture becomes less Christian, it's more like the situation that Paul was writing to into, into ancient Ephesus with many different gods and political domination and machinations that don't seem to be for Christian truth. 
And Paul was writing to the uh, Ephesian Christians, wanting to encourage them. That's his aim. Encourage them with the heavenly places. That's his theme. Not where you go when you die. Not that kind of meaning of heaven. But the unseen spiritual reality. He's saying you can be encouraged because God has heavenly power. God has a purpose in Christ in the heavenly places. And that can encourage you, church. Because with that reality of his heavenly power, his victory in the heavenly places, uh, you therefore can walk in love and speak the truth in love and, and be one. And this group of, this network of churches that... The Ephesus church was uh, the, the, the sort of pinnacle of it or the, 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 the nexus of it, the, the point of which others went out to uh, Asia from Paul's preaching in the hall of Tyrannus. He's writing to them, some of whom who did not know him, some of whom who have met him, and he wants to encourage them. He wants to lift them. He wants them to come to church when this letter is read and leave going, I'm so encouraged. That's the feeling he wants them to have. Why? Because of these heavenly places. And in this passage we're looking at this morning, we come to the first of his particular application of how they can be encouraged about these heavenly places, which is that God's purpose is to bless us. That's what's really going on, Christian. His purpose is to bless us. And the Apostle Paul, as he writes this extraordinary, actually it's one sentence in the original Greek, this, this whole section, one sentence, which to us seems remarkable because we don't, if you send a book off to an editor with a sentence this long, they use a lot of red paper, red, red uh, uh, writing and cut it right down. But in ancient Greek, it was reasonably common to write these kind of long sentences. It's a, it's a kaleidoscope, one scholar puts it, of, of brilliant lights and shifting colors. He's trying to persuade the Ephesians that despite what it might seem from the goddess Artemis, from the political powers of Rome, from the magic all around them, actually, God's purpose is to bless us. You might, you might ask yourself sometimes if you ever think of becoming a preacher, which I don't usually recommend, but if you do, you might like to ask yourself, what, what is the hardest thing to persuade a group of people to think and believe? The usual answer to that is the hardest thing to do is to persuade people that they're actually sinners in need of Christ. And there's some truth to that. If you're not yet a Christian here, this teaching about God's purpose to bless us is not yet for you unless you become a Christian, which I hope you will, and then it will be for you. But in order for you to have the solution, you need to believe that there is a problem. And it is no doubt a difficult thing as a preacher to persuade people who've been told from birth through all the schooling systems that you're basically good that actually you have a fundamental moral problem that needs to be solved by the redemption of Jesus Christ. That's a hard thing to persuade people to believe, for sure. But I would say just as hard, if not harder, it is to persuade Christians that they are blessed. That God has given you 
as Paul puts it here in his summary uh, verse of what he's going to teach in verse 3, every spiritual blessing. That God's purpose is for your good. And he has given you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The great task of a preacher is to apportion the medicine to the right people, to give, to give to persuade Christians that they have a problem that needs solving is the wrong way around. What you need to persuade Christians is they have a solution for the problem. They have every spiritual blessing. You, if you're a Christian. God has a purpose to bless us. My task, my aim this morning, if I succeed in the sermon, is that you will go out, not only in general, for each of these sermons, I wouldn't, the, the aim would be that you go out encouraged, but it's specifically this morning. My aim as a preacher, my task is, that we would leave this morning not only generally speaking encouraged, but specifically encouraged because God has given us every spiritual blessing. It's a hard thing to achieve. I don't know whether you've seen uh, the movie A Beautiful Mind. In the movie A Beautiful Mind, there's a brilliant genius mathematician who is astonishingly talented, but he lives within a false fictional world, a fantasy world. And what finally persuades him that his version of reality is not reality is the realization that the child who keeps on appearing in his fantasy world over what seems like decades, this child never gets a day older. Many of us live in realities that are not true realities. If we're Christians, we live in a reality as if, oh, things are hard. Things are difficult. Things are bad. Things are not what they used to be for the older generation or for the younger generation. Things are not going to be good like I want them to be. Paul's saying, no, you've got it all wrong. You're living in a false fictional world. The real reality is You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even if you're in Ephesus and the goddess of Artemis with one of the seven wonders of the world is right next to you. And Rome is dominating you. Forget all your fears about who's going to be in Washington, D.C. Imagine if Rome was dominating you with all its pagan ideology. And yet the Apostle Paul says, You have every spiritual blessing. How can that be? Well, he seeks to tell us. And as I said, this uh, sentence is probably dictated. It was probably um, spoken verbally by the Apostle Paul and then written down. And it has all the, the, the signs, the marks of something that is verbalized rather than something that's first crafted. And that when, when, you, when you're speaking in, in, in this sort of way, when you're dictating, you tend to go forwards and then recap a little bit and then go forwards again and then recap a little bit and then go forwards again. And it's structured that kind of way. But basically, the way he talks about this blessing and God's purpose to bless us is a vision of this heavenly blessing that we have we're Christians that goes from eternity past to God's action in time to eternity, future, past, present, and then future. Let's see how he wants them to see the real reality and wake up from the fiction that if they're Christians, they're not blessed. Actually, they are. They have every spiritual blessing. First of all, eternity, past, verses 4 
to 6. So he's given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Then verse 4, even as or because, here's, here's how we have God's purposes to bless us. This is how and why. This is the reason. Even as he chose us or because he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What a text. You, Christian, were chosen before physical reality existed. Before the foundation of the cosmos, the universe, you were chosen in him, that is in Christ. That we should be holy and blameless before him. Uh, Paul as a preacher, immediately indicates that this choice doesn't mean any lack of action morally. No, that we must be holy and blameless before him. Do not think, and if you want to pick up a paper on this, I've written um, just a summary paper on divine sovereignty and human responsibility. You can pick up on the, on the bookstore on the way out. It's free. Um, And I won't go into detail on it. But do not think that the biblical doctrine of God's sovereignty is ever at war war with or contradictory to human responsibility to be holy and blameless. It's not how the Bible thinks about it. The Apostle Paul, when he was preaching in Corinth, was feeling as if nothing was going on and people weren't being converted and he, he was and he and a vision was given to him where the lord said do not be frightened i have many people in this city the apostle paul's reasoning from that was not therefore he could leave corinth and go somewhere else but because god has many people in his pe- in his city those he had chosen before the foundation of the world his people because he had many people in his city therefore he stayed for 3 years That's biblical reasoning. Because God is sovereign, therefore we preach. Because God is sovereignly powerful to convert, therefore we preach. Because God is sovereign, therefore we must be holy. That's the way the the Bible thinks about it. God's sovereignty and human responsibility are never biblically at war with each other. They are two train tracks that run parallel over the horizon of eternity into the mind of God before the foundation of the world, eternity past, as we'll see, action in time, and then eternity future. But those train tracks never cross. Thinking biblically, you would never say, because God is sovereign, therefore I don't need to do anything. No, because God is sovereign, therefore I must do something. Therefore, I must pray because why would you pray to any God who isn't sovereign? What would be the point? That's the way the Bible thinks about it. Why would you evangelize if God isn't sovereign? What would be the point if God isn't able to convert? Why would I preach? That's the way the Bible thinks about it. I still think the best illustration is D.L. Moody's um, 
uh, illustration. And the way he described it is, imagine that you're, you're going through a door and a, above the door is written the biblical text from the words of Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so you go through the door and you're saved. You find rest in Jesus. He says, come to me. You respond. You make a decision. You decide for Jesus. You respond to the appeal of Jesus preaching. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You go through the door and you're saved. And then you look back and on the other side of the door, there's another text that is written. For since before the foundation of the world, I chose you. The Bible never preaches predestination to non-Christians. It is only ever preached to Christians to encourage them. If you're not a Christian here, if you believe in Jesus, you will be saved. And if you're saved, he has known you since before the foundation of the world. And if you believe in Jesus, he chose you in him before the physical universe existed. But for all that theologizing, Paul is not really looking at this through the lens of logic. He's looking at it through the lens of love. Do you see how this section, the verses 4 to 6, that's eternity past, how love is emphasized? That we should be holy and blameless before him in love, or in love he predestined, but love is is all there. For adoption, again, you're in the family, to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us, God's purpose to bless us is the is the theme of this, this passage, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. It's his love. When we think of the love of God, according to the Apostle Paul, we should think of his sovereignty. His sovereign choice of us. That before you had a thought... Before you were a twinkle in the eye of your father or your mother. Before time existed. Before the world existed. He loved you. God's purpose to bless us from eternity past... And then into his action in time. This is verses 7 to to 10. He then shifts to what God did to show his, his, uh, his purpose to bless. In him we have redemption through his blood. Of course he's talking about the cross when Jesus died on the cross and he gave his his blood uh, that we might be um, washed uh, whiter than snow and clean from all our impurities. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace. If if, if God's sovereignty is connected to love, then his, his work in Christ is connected to the riches of his grace, which he lavished 
I love that way it's put here. He lavished upon us all his grace, every spiritual blessing. He lavished on you in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. What is the mystery of God's will? What is the gospel? According to his purpose, the mystery of his his will, which he set forth in Christ. That's the mystery of God's will. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Heaven, things in heaven. Again, the heavenly places and things on earth. This being one across all different races, Jews and Gentiles, is a, is a sub-theme of the book of Ephesians. And you can see this here. That the, the mystery of the gospel unites Jew and Gentile in Christ. That's, that's how we get united. Not by thinking about all the things that we have that are different from one another but by thinking about him in whom we are one if we're Christians. And that is his wisdom and insight and the mystery of the gospel through, through Christ. His action in time, in him we have redemption through his blood. Now you may be saying, look, I want to believe, I'm a Christian, and I want to believe that God's purpose is to bless me. But it's hard. I have cancer. And you're telling me God's purpose is to bless me? My son does not believe in Jesus. And you're telling me that God's sovereign purpose is to bless us? I'm estranged from my husband. You're telling me that God's purpose is to bless us? I'm reading the news, Pastor. I'm seeing what's going on in the world. You're telling me that God has a purpose to bless us? I remember once when I was doing some mission work in the former Soviet Union, and it was a very disturbed time out there. And this particular uh, time when I was out there was reasonably traumatic. Let's put it like that. And I was feeling all that might go with having gone through a pretty disturbed personal experience in a, in a, in a upside-down kind of culture with all sorts of craziness going on. And I, I came back to uh, uh, London, which many of you know, is, I was just born just south of London. And I, I flew back in, and I, 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 I was a young man at the time, I think early 20s or mid-20s. And I came to see my parents who lived just on the outside just in greater London and went to see them and I didn't have a car so I borrowed uh, their car and I drove into the middle of London to Westminster and I got to um, Westminster Square and I drove around that square a few times if you've ever been there it can be very busy and I sort of drove around it slowly a few times and each time as I drove by I looked up at Big Ben and I thought to myself despite everything else that's going on, it's still here. Actually, um, Rochelle, I proposed to Rochelle just opposite Big Ben on a, um, some years later, uh, there was a, at the time, there was a, just a park bench there and I proposed looking across at, uh, at Big Ben and by the way they've replaced that park bench with the London Eye 
to mark the spot where we uh, got engaged. It was very nice of them to do so. Cancer, relational friction, feeling sad. I've, I've, I've come in this morning, it's dark outside. I feel, I, I'm trying to say, now thank we all our God, but that's not what I'm feeling. And then you go back to the redemption in his blood. His action in time. You go back to Calvary. And it's still there. And you know his purpose is to bless you. So much has he lavished his grace upon you. God's purpose to bless us. Eternity past to his action in time as a plan for the fullness of time. It's a wonderful way of describing how God is sort of bringing to boil all the different parts of his planning until this moment. Not, not chronos as in a certain two different Greek words for time, chronos and kairos. Not chronos as in like what time it is this morning. It's, it's 9.45 or 10 o'clock or whatever it is right now. But, but, but kairos as in just the right time. That moment in time, you go there and you know God's purpose is to bless us. Past, present, and then future. As I say, it's a, uh, the, the scholar who said it's a kaleidoscope, a brilliant uh, shifting colors and, and dazzling lights is absolutely right. And it's, a, it's, it's been verbalized, dictated. So now it's from verse 11. He shifts to the future, but he sort of recaps back as well. You'll see how he does it. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Looking forward to the inheritance that will be finally fulfilled, of course, in the future. But then he goes back, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, which was the first movement, the eternity past. He's reminding us of it so that we don't forget the eternity past, action in time, so that we, now he's going forwards, so that, which is the predominance of the movement, verse 11 to 14, verse 12, so that we who were the first to what hope in Christ... He's looking forwards. Might be to the praise for his glory. In him you also, when you, now he's back to the action in time. Recapping again, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. You heard the message of the redemption of his blood, and you believed, if you're a Christian, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is, now he's going, future, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it that is in glory and therefore to the praise of his glory. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You're revealing this unseen spiritual reality for us. Past, action and time, now future. The guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it because of God's purpose to bless us. Therefore he is blessed, that is, therefore he is praised. We praise him. Not only therefore, 
Do we have this objective place to go to? Calvary. It's still there, the cross. The action in time. We also have the Holy Spirit. The seal guaranteeing our inheritance. Of course, in the ancient world, world, seals were used to verify the authenticity of a document. We're sealed. We're really his. A down payment, a foretaste of the coming glories in the world to come. Not only the objective reality of Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross that we'll be remembering when we go through Easter in just a moment, but also the subjective experience of the Spirit. That he has shed abroad in our hearts his hope. That we know, we Christians, we know that there's something more to come. We have the sea of the Spirit inside. Oh, it's a feeling, it's an experience, it's an affection. And you say, well, that's all very sentimental. Well, there is the objective reality. There's a coherence of the plan from eternity past, the God's sovereignty and human responsibility that fits and coheres around his love. And there's the objective marker of his action in time. But there is also the experience. The connection. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. That I know what I know. Perhaps it happens to you when you're listening to music. You're going for a walk in the woods on your own. For me, often when I'm in worship with God's people, there's an internal hope. The Spirit lifts within me. And I know God's purpose is to bless us. Oh, yeah, you can. All sorts of things can be going on in the external reality. All sorts, and you don't you don't ignore that or downplay that or pretend it's not true or or or. But you know, there's a greater truth. That from eternity past to his action in time to eternity future, and the Holy Spirit witnesses to your spirit, to your heart, that you are his. Child of God, God's purpose is for your good to bless you. And Paul's aim is that the Ephesians would uh, 
Again, believe it. In him you also, when you heard of the word, the truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, that they would again believe it, that they would be encouraged by God's purpose to bless in the heavenly realms. There's all the evidence we could have. And yet sometimes it is hard to believe, isn't it? I was talking with a colleague uh, this week, and as we were chatting, I I told this old preacher story. When you've been, I've got a kind of like a infrastructure in my mind of all sorts of different stories for any moment. You can tell my children; they'll be annoyed by it. But and this is a little bit of an old preacher story, but it makes the point as we close. There was a man who thought he was dead. So he goes to his pastor and says, Pastor, I'm pretty convinced I'm not actually alive. I'm dead. And the pastor has never come across this before, so he refers him to a counselor. And the counselor has never really come across this before, so he refers him to an eminent psychiatrist. He goes to the eminent psychiatrist. He says to him, Doctor, I'm pretty convinced I'm not alive. I'm dead. And the psychiatrist tries to persuade him that indeed he's alive to no avail. Eventually the psychiatrist says, look, here's, here's what I want you to do. Go away for a week, come back next week, and in that week I want you to do all the research you can as to what is the difference between a living person and a dead person, then come back and we'll talk about it. So the patient says, okay, I'll do that. So he goes away for a week, he does all sorts of research on the difference between a living person and a dead person. He come back, comes back next week, sits in front of the psychiatrist and his big impressive desk, sits in front of him and he says, doctor, I have the answer. I have figured out there is one irrefutable proof that distinguishes between a living person and a dead person. And the psychiatrist said, okay, what's that? He said, well, uh, dead men don't bleed. And the psychiatrist says, excellent. And he gets up from behind his desk. He has a small pin in his hand. He rolls back the patient's arm. He pricks him on, the, on his forearm. And a little drop of blood starts to form. And the psychiatrist looks at his patient and says, see? And the patient says, yes, I do see. It's amazing. Dead men do bleed. Christian, God's purpose is to bless you in every way, with every spiritual blessing. I'll be encouraged. Lift up your face. From eternity past to his action in time to eternity future. God's purpose is to bless us. Let's pray together. Our Father, it's so easy to live in a world that seems so real. Death and taxes and the daily grind of nine to five, sickness, heartache, a broken relationship. And therefore, Lord, even for your people to begin to think that these things define 
define what is real, define who we are, define what it is that you want for us. Help us, Lord, to see the unseen spiritual realm, the heavenly places, your purpose to bless us with every spiritual blessing. From eternity past to your action in time to eternity future. And whether we are physically beautiful, whether we are a genius with an IQ of 150, whether we are disabled, whether we are emotionally on the mountains or in the valley, there's a bigger purpose, Lord, through it all that cannot be derailed. And amazingly, Father God, it is for our good and our blessing. And so we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.